Listening to the Amodamar podcast. In this series, Amoda explores her essential teaching through conversation and excerpts from interviews and events. To find out more about events and to sign up for her newsletter, go to www.amodamar.com. Please subscribe, comment, and share if this podcast moves you. And if you feel called to donate, please go to the website. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Okay, greetings, one and all, and welcome back to another podcast with Amodamar. My name is Kavi, as some of you know, and I'm delighted to announce that this is episode 15. Yes, Amoda, we've made it through 15, or well, you have made it through 15, and here we are. So... Hello, Moda. Hello, Kavi. Um, today we are going to explore the phrase, life is your satsang. So we're going to just uh, dive into that. Firstly, uh, 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 a sort of a f- exploration of what is satsang, and then we're going to move on, hopefully, to what a moda might mean by life is your satsang. Bearing in mind, please, that this is not a the- theologic or a philosophical, you know, or a historical kind of analysis. We don't, as you as you know, if you've been listening to these conversations, we don't really come at it from you know, from from that angle. This is really uh, about how. It is in this realm for a moda's teaching for a moda. So while it touches on some of those maybe truths or uh, definitions, it's it's not them specifically. So having got that out of the way, I am going to throw it open and throw it to you, moda. What do you mean by this quixotic, haha, and intriguing word that has puzzled many? Uh, called satsang. What is satsang to you? Well, I think for for listeners who are on a spiritual path, um, then the general consensus of satsang is a gathering or meeting in truth in the truth of beingness, in the truth of the depth of who we are. And this may take various forms. Sometimes satsang is a gathering with a spiritual teacher. Um, Sometimes a satsang is uh, more of a gathering of spiritual seekers uh, without the teacher the teacher being the space itself, perhaps, or the space of honesty or the space of inquiry. Sometimes satsang is used for um, gatherings where there is a musical offering, Uh, spiritual music, music of the heart, perhaps a kirtan, perhaps devotional songs. So it's a kind of loose term, I guess. Mm, the way that I'm using it for the purposes of this conversation and perhaps when I do 
drop it into any discourses or dialogues, which I don't very much. But um, a satsang is, I think meeting in truth comes closest to it. What is that truth? It's not an ideological truth. It's not a philosophical truth. It's not a religious truth, and it's not even a metaphysical truth. So it's not conceptual. Um, it's really a meeting in which meeting with a teacher or meeting with each other, uh, some kind of gathering in which the truth of our essential nature is pointed to. And so a satsang often has, <clears throat> uh, I, I see it as a kind of crucible, a kind of container um, where a dialogue and an inquiry can take place that is beyond or outside of the conventional social matrix, the conventional social interaction, um, and also outside of the conventional educational or even religious kind of uh, interaction. Um, so we're really uh, creating a container for a truth that is deeper than the mind's beliefs or the self's identities uh, can reveal itself. And so in that crucible of discourse and inquiry, which may take the place, uh, the form of a kind of formal question-answer um, interaction, in that the possibility or the transformative quality of a satsang is that some of the um, layers or defense structures that uphold the ego self, the ego identity or identities can come tumbling down, can almost burn in the fire of truth. So it has a transformative or transmutative quality just by its very nature. Like truth is, truth is like a, a fire. Fire, yeah. yeah. And so there's a, there's a, <clears throat> is there a mirror, mirror-like quality of the, you know, of the, of, of, of the, the space that the space offers that holds a, a mirror up to each person, potentially? Yes. I mean, if there's a, I mean, that's where a satsang really needs, if you like, a, a, a one who has uh, awakened, one who has gone beyond their own, you know, self-identities and is rooted in that, abiding in that, abiding in presence and openness and the truth of beingness, the truth of um, the innermost state as consciousness so then there can be a reflection yeah okay yeah 
I'm, 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 I'm going to segue and jump very quickly then, because I think we've established that. I don't think there's in a way. So then we go on to this second point, which is the phrase, life is your satsang. <clears throat> and now I'm going to call into question something that is, is, is a rather uh, an anomaly in this instance, because you said that satsang, generally speaking, is a meeting in truth. Yeah. But here you're pointing to life is your satang. But hold on a minute. The matrix world, the world of unconsciousness, the world of duality. I, it, well, what, what's that one about? Because there's no human being or master sitting in life holding the space of truth yeah it's the world of illusion the world of delusion the world of the veil yeah it's the veiled world so how my dear Amoda, can that be your satsang okay let's take this slowly <laughs> let's try and dissect that um first of all i said life is your satsang not the world is your satsang <laughs> 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 oh, you're a crafty one, aren't you? So we need to You've always got it make a discernment between that. The world is the world of the matrix, yeah, the matrix of beliefs. There is no world out there other than the world that we believe it to be through the veils of our own perception, our own beliefs, and so on, unless those veils have been cleared. So the world is made up of a kind of matrix of beliefs, narratives, um, points of view, uh, uh, and, and, you know, usually through the lens of the myopic ego self. When I refer to life, <laughs> I mean the life that is beyond the world. That's a whole exploration in itself. So I guess that's what this conversation is about. Let's, okay, have, a let's, look at let's this. have a look at this. Yeah. yeah. So, yes, when we talk about the conventional uh, understanding or usage of, of satsang, we're usually talking about a spiritual teacher, one who has awakened, who is not coming from ideology or belief, but is coming from direct realization of true nature and is able to reflect that. Uh, point to that, speak from that, uh, and sit in the vibration of that because that's who or what that one essentially is. That is essential nature. <clears throat> so anyone who comes into the field of that is going to uh, mm -hmm. to have that reflected or pointed to uh, to see to show how um, one's belief in me as this identity or that identity um, is is not true nature is not mm -hmm. the, the 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 essence now how can life do that because what I'm really saying is that life is your spiritual teacher well first of all on the spiritual path we do almost always uh, naturally are drawn to some kind of teacher um, on the path. 
Yeah. At some point, at some point, we are invited, or at least in my teaching, <laughs> to include life as the teacher or to turn towards life as the teacher because there is a tendency, first of all, to become dependent on the form of the spiritual teacher or even the form of the satsang. Yeah, when I say form, I mean the time and space in which the satsang takes place. It's usually, what, a couple of hours once a month or a couple of hours once a week even. Um, and then that is the form of the satsang. And so there is a reliance or a dependency or expectation or commitment to the discovery of true nature, to the discovery of truth in that time, in that form, either the form of the satsang or the form of the teacher in the satsang. And so the invitation of the true spiritual inquiry of truly waking up to our true nature must include life, must include life. What does that mean? It means that every experience that we have, every peak and valley, every challenge, every loss, every everything that a human being can experience is an opportunity to wake up. You see, when we've penetrated the veil of reality, we see that life is always offering us that opportunity in all experiences. And so turning our attention to that expands the satsang, the satsang, the opportunity for waking up, the opportunity for realizing true nature, the opportunity to deepen into presence um, and openness is available to us always. So this kind of um, cuts through uh, spiritual laziness, mm. spiritual materialism, and so on and so on, and it, even it, spiritual identity. It cuts through bypassing, really, and it cuts through a kind of <clears throat> intellectualism or a safety, you know, because in a way there's a there can be a tendency, not always, but sometimes, to actually you know, st- long for or become addicted to on a certain level. And I have seen this, addicted to the satsang, because in the satsang, there it is, you know, I experienced the burning of the karma, the burning of the, you know, of the conditionality, the stories, the thing. And, uh, and, then, and then when I leave there and go home, it's still there a little bit and it lasts. And then the next day, well, it's a little bit faded. And three days later, it's like, you know, well, it's not really there, fragrance. And then five days later, you're completely forgotten. Yes, and so then the desire is to to rekindle that flame, that fire, you know, by either seeking seeking it somewhere else or seeking it in the same place, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I think most people know this, you know, kind of tendency now, and I think there is a conversation about, you know, how how it uh, how there's a need to move from that. 
And and this is where the, the juice really is, isn't there? And I know this from my own life because yes. I very much, very much embrace that, that every experience that I'm having is a profound moment if I could but see it and not just gloss over it or turn away from it. A profound invitation to ask the question, who am I in this moment? Yes, absolutely. And, it, and it's a fine line. It's, you know... <laughs> to completely turn away from any um from from the from the treasure that is available when uh let's say a true teacher is is in the vicinity to turn away from the commitment to that path um because of some idea that you can do it all yourself kind of thing that that's not it either it requires both a commitment a sort of going all the way and also um a, a, a seeing through the codependency of that relationship which means including life yeah including life it's the same as um meditation you know we can sit on the meditation cushion for an hour a day or 30 minutes a day. Um, and then the rest of the day, we're not on that meditation cushion, either literally nor, uh, you know, metaphysically. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've let go of the reins. We've become unconscious and that's, you know, a kind of spiritual laziness. Um, so what I'm saying is that life is your meditation. Life itself offers that possibility. Life is your guru. Life is the ongoing invitation to surrender the self into the now, into the now through all experiences and to see that which is beyond experience, to, to realize true nature beyond the comings and goings of all experiences. And, and life is always offering that opportunity. That's how much life loves us. Life loves us in the same way that a spiritual teacher loves us. Yeah, life is the embodiment of love, but we, we, I, I, I say that in terms of the unconscious state, um, the unconscious state uh, of the human being, the ego state of the human being, doesn't see life that way. Doesn't see through the veil of its own. Um, likings and dislikings its own grievances about life its own sense of being victim of life and therefore sees life as doing something wrong to me doing something bad to me doing something punishing to me abandoning me rejecting me yeah so we put a lot of um, projections onto life and then believe life to be that yeah but when we allow life to actually be a an expression, an invitation from that which is beyond form, that which is the source of all life, which can only be um, a kind of eternal goodness, yeah, life lifing itself, it's always giving itself to us, then we can start to, um, if you like, open to, to life, yeah? allow life, become intimate with life, 
become intimate with every experience because in that intimacy something completely changes yeah the sense of self as the poor me changes in deep intimacy with what is it dies it can't exist in that in that in the deep intimacy with what is that is the fire of truth yeah separation comes to an end You know what I'm. What I'm, I I I hear you completely, of course, um, and I'm. You know, I'm wondering. Do you, do you? I mean, you know, life life's experiences are are many and varied, and very dense. You know, it's a dense realm of reality. The 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 yeah the the mainstream world that we're all bred. To, and designed to be able to navigate in. And so your invitation is, you know, this invitation of life being satsang is actually quite radical, isn't it? Let, let, let's face it, it's radical. So, you know, it, 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 what, 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 needs, what needs to happen kind of first in a way, because I know that people are hear, hear that message. They hear that message, I know. But, you know, how do you... It's always the how question, of course. I'm going to ask it for people. You know, it's like, how do you do that? Do you have to have had a glimpse beyond the veil first? Or can you just have the intention, even if you haven't had a glimpse beyond the veil? I'd like to know what that is as well at some point. If you haven't had a glimpse beyond the veil, but you've got the will and you've got the longing, you've got the desire, but Boy, that is such a dense, you know, the realm of reality that I've given myself to for the last 40 or 50 years. And you're saying open to it. Oh, when, where, how, what? Ooh, it's freaky. I, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm trying to ask difficult questions because I know that these questions are around. Yeah. Yeah. They're alive. You, you, you. You have to have come to a kind of internal pressure cooker point in which the intensity of the end, sorry, the intensity of psychological suffering here yeah, let's let's make it clear we're talking about psychological suffering here in other words our thoughts about reality our beliefs about reality yeah yeah, yeah our beliefs and our thoughts about okay. my experience okay yeah. Yeah? yeah yeah that's where psychological suffering takes place this shouldn't be happening to me. I'm a bad person. They shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't be punished in this way. Life shouldn't be letting me down. I should be getting what I want. I need it to go my way. I should be better than this. I'm not enough. Therefore, I've got to try harder and so on and so on. This is psychological suffering. And we're primarily talking about the, the modern day psyche. Yeah. Let's let's not look for now, because it's not so relevant, although it's relevant to each human being, but to, let's say, cultures, either historically or in the modern day, that are in extreme 
conditions of physical survival, suffering, yeah, famine, war, um, extreme poverty, and so on, yeah, because the psyche isn't necessarily available for this at, in that, yeah, when it's just when that's all the only reality it, it knows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and you, yeah. I mean, you can wake up in a jail cell, and you can wake up in the midst yeah, of yeah, torture, yeah. but we're still talking about the Western psyche. That's an extreme condition within the the Western psyche, or the the modern day psyche, I should call it. But even today, cultures that are in extreme poverty, perhaps in Africa, in famine, where children are dying, they're malnourished. We're not talking about that. That that needs <laughs> support on a different level. Yeah, on an actual physical survival level. You can't really be thinking about waking up if you're dying of starvation. You've, yeah, uh, malnourished and so on. So we are talking about a, a certain uh, level of development of the psyche that isn't totally fixated on physical survival. Um, although there are situations of physical survival even in this you know we children are abused and um yeah well, there's there is a lot, poverty there is, and there is there is, yeah, trauma, course, there is trauma trauma of and yeah. of course there is and there is accident and there is loss and so on so of course it includes that but we're primarily talking about the western psyche uh, sorry the modern day psyche that that is at a certain stage of development that can turn its attention inwards towards the nature of psychological suffering. In other words, my thoughts about my experience. When it starts to see that, because it starts to see there's a kind of intensity of psychological suffering where poor me this, poor me that, my life is a drama, he left me, I lost my job, uh, things aren't going my way. Yeah, and our thoughts about reality, our thoughts about ourselves our thoughts about my life, our thoughts about the people that we're surrounded with, family, so on and so on, they are come to an intensity and you see for a moment within that intensity that you or your thoughts, it's not your thoughts, it's your believing in those thoughts to be reality that is the cause of suffering. Now you're saying, asking, how does that happen? How do you see that? There isn't a how. It's it's it comes to a point yeah, where there's I'm, no I'm, choice. I'm not actually looking for a how. I'm just trying to get into the gaps. Yeah, into the gaps so that so that there's a because actually some of this can come from an understanding. It can come. The mind is a valuable asset on the spiritual path, despite how it's denied and decried and stuff. Yeah, because actually the mind, this is you know, once you have an articulation, maybe you've got a very good articulation of what's actually going on. That's all. If we can understand some of what's going on from your side of the veil, let's say. And the other side of the veil and what what this uh, discontent is, yeah, because we don't understand. We haven't been trained to understand this discontent that you're talking about, kind of suffering. Yeah, but the discontent is the doorway. 
Yeah. Yes. And you have to come to a place of discontent. That discontent needs to build up its intensity. Yeah, without the discontent, then there's nothing to investigate, really. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's just, it's just so, a great life. <laughs> yeah, so it's just the, the discontent comes by itself. The discontent, let, hang on, let's put it this way. The discontent comes when all the striving for success, all the striving for comfort, all the striving for security, all the striving to be loved, to find love, all the striving to be somebody, to gain some recognition, all the striving to feel good enough and worthy enough and to feel fulfilled. When all that striving comes to naught, because still there is discontent, then the true spiritual inquiry begins. We don't even have to call it a spiritual inquiry. The true inquiry begins. The inquiry begins because we start to look inwards and say, well, if all these things, all these things I have, all these relationships, all all this wealth, all this seeming security, all these experiences that I've amassed, pleasure experiences, exciting experiences, loving experiences, if all this still leaves me feeling unfulfilled, then what is going on here? Where have I been looking in the wrong direction? And then possibly we start to look within for the source of peace, for the source of love, for the source of fulfillment. Yeah, yeah. Now we can start the true inquiry. Yeah. Now we can start to yeah. open to life, not just as things that we amass along the journey of life, things also being experiences, but the essence of life. Can we find fulfillment in the very fact? of aliveness, the very fact that life is constantly lifing itself. Yeah, it's always here. This begins to take us into presence. This begins to take us into openness and something starts to change from within. Yeah, what what I hear you kind of saying in a way, and I I want to get your your idea of this, is like there's there's actually... We go to, you know, go to satsang, listen to a spiritual teacher. Actually, in a way, you know, we have to be careful of that because there's a tendency to look for answers too quickly because there are 10,000 questions to ask first. And what you're saying, I think, what I hear inside what you're saying is that life, life's experiences, because every moment is offering a new experience in relationship, in work, in the shop, in the store, with your dog, with your mum, you know, on the internet, in the, with the news. These are all offering an opportunity to ask you know, extremely deep questions. And if we don't get to ask those questions, then we're jumping straight to the answers. And then that's not it. That's not it. It's the opportunity to ask the questions that you were just talking about. Yes. I mean, we, we, we often need, if you like, or the support that's available from 
one who is pointing yes, yes, to yes. the inner is absolutely vital. Otherwise, you know, we're sort of flapping around. So we take that pointing and then we almost uh, apply it, if you like, uh, to, to life itself or let life point us in, in the same direction. Becomes a very practical living satsang. <laughs> Yeah, a, a living uh, uh, guru, if you like, the guru of life itself. You know, and, and, and we also speak in, in spiritual terms about surrender to the guru. Yeah. You know, we need to open ourselves, yeah, to that relationship. And that's very much the traditional way. And even the modern day way, you know, in the moment, at least, we don't have to surrender our whole life. To, to the guru, but in the moment... I surrendered my life to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily, it worked out quite well. Oh, oh I like it. Well, I, didn't take, <laughs> I didn't take advantage of you. You could trust me. I wasn't going to steal your money or your, or your or anything <laughs> because you didn't take, have any... <laughs> take advantage of my body. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't need anything from you. Um, but in the moment of inquiry, when we're with a teacher or whoever it might be, there, there must be a deep surrender to that, yeah, to surrender to the intimacy available in that. Um, and so, yeah, in, in speaking of that surrender, if we apply that to life, surrender to life itself that becomes very powerful I'll, I'll give a little bit if i may uh example or story from my life yeah <laughs> go ahead when i came back from india when i came back from Pune, uh being in uh the osho ashram even though osho wasn't there the one thing that if you like happened to me in being there and continued, you know, without any conscious, I could say conscious intention. I didn't really understand what was, what was going on. But I surrendered to the unconditional love that seemed to be palpable and available in the frequency field of the Pune ashram wasn't a surrender to anyone. It wasn't even a surrender to Osho as such. He wasn't in his form, in his body. Therefore, there wasn't much to surrender to um, other than in the imagination. But there was a frequency field of openness, of love, that, that I didn't even know that that's what was happening. But somehow that surrender continued when I returned to... At the time, I was living in London in quite difficult conditions. But it's like it sort of translated the path of surrender, the energeticness of surrender, I should say. I didn't even know consciously it was the path of surrender. But the energetic state of surrender continued into my life. What did that mean? It meant that instead of fighting the things that I thought were wrong, instead of blaming life for things going wrong, 
instead of scrambling for something else, you know, something other than what was here, what was unfolding in my experience, somehow something in me relaxed Mm -hmm. and allowed whatever was unfolding, even though the conditions or the circumstances were uncomfortable. uh, At the time, I lived in relative poverty, um, relative insecurity, and in a challenging relationship. Relative dysfunctionality in relationship. (laughs) In a relationship. Not with me, I hasten to add. (laughs) So life was far from perfect or the way that I might have wanted it to be. But something in me gave up the fight, gave up the argument. That's what surrender is. And allowed myself to be intimate and if you if you like go with the flow of things i'm not talking about circumstances although it includes circumstances but just to relax into the experience i was having and it started to change from being a very uh what i was experiencing before that a very malnourished experience I felt like I wasn't nourished by life. I felt like I was outside of life. I felt like I was kind of the, the, the poor bird that had been kicked out of the baby bird that had been kicked out of the nest and was left sort of gawping on the side of the road, waiting for its mummy to come to feed it. That's kind of how I experienced life. I was malnourished. Well, my circumstances didn't change. And certainly not straight away. I I was still in relative poverty. I was still in relative hardship. I was still, you know, lost in terms of not knowing what to do, you know, which direction to take. But they started to get nourished by life. Mm. The self that was fighting, that was arguing, that was feeling outside of it started to become intimate with it. And gradually that changed. It became much more of a river of surrender. So even when my internal state, yeah, my internal psychological landscape might have been one of melancholy, which is something that I experienced a lot. So I would feel quite open and high and ecstatic, perhaps through meditation, perhaps I'd, you know, whatever it was I was doing at the time, um, I did go to the Buddhist monastery quite a lot, and that was a beautiful experience that opened me up. So I'd get open and high and a little bit ecstatic and, you know, then life is good. And then, yeah. And then a certain melancholy would come and I'd start to feel like the little bird again. And I started to surrender myself in all that. I, in other words, I stopped being concerned with whether it was high, whether it was low, whether it was ecstatic, whether it was melancholic, whether it was light, whether it was dark, whether it was spiritual, whether it was mundane. And this whole polarity that the self is identified with and therefore creates an argument with reality, reality being your internal state, not just your external circumstances, that started to dissolve and it became a river of surrender. That's what it felt like. And it became more graceful, more smooth. Yeah, so whatever landscape I was moving through, 
it was absolutely okay. And 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 uh, this is this is beautiful. This is more to the point. River of surrender. I do love this. So <clears throat> when you when you it's almost like you began to live from a different intelligence. You know, a different intelligence started to inform your actually even your, your worldly, not just your inner world, but your entire worldly experience began to open up and you were living from uh, this river of surrender, which is available to, to each of us, to everybody, but we're so busy and preoccupied. So then what did, just pursuing this for a bit, after by and by, what did happen to that, to those were those dysfunct that dysfunctional relationship was that affected by the river of surrender that you know sense of self-worth that you carried around was that impacted and in what way by the by the difference in living from the river of surrender how did it actually impact your everyday life it's a very good question well it didn't make me a better person in terms of being uh, more perfect or more enlightened or more, or even, you know, more worthy in my relationship, which was dysfunctional because I was always seeking love, seeking to be loved in that relationship. In other words, seeking approval. I didn't feel good enough. And when the reflection from that relationship would come that I wasn't good enough, I wasn't uh, lovable enough, then I would collapse into a poor me. Um, it didn't necessarily change that immediately. It didn't make the relationship better. It didn't mm. make the relationship less dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. It didn't make my life uh, improve my life in terms of circumstances. Certainly not immediately. And when I say immediately, for a number of years. Mm. But what it did do mm. is it was a kind of invisible uh, happening by itself, if you like, mm. purification of everything that was false in my yeah, life, exactly. all the false structures exactly. that I had built in order to find love, to find approval, to find comfort, started to either collapse or come up to be seen. And so something in me recognized, wow, this isn't actually right for me. Yeah. That's Whereas before it was very right for me and I really wanted it and I would cling to it like bloody yeah. hell. Yeah. <clears throat> so what happened in real life, yeah, in real terms, was my relationship came to, after this was, took a few years, two or three mm -hmm. years longer, um, it came to a head and it collapsed. Mm, yeah. And I had no choice but to be true to that which was true in myself, which is a big fat no. Yeah, no to that relationship. And of mm. course it hurt and so on. So it was a kind of purification. It's like the river of surrender started to meander into the details of my life and deconstruct 
pull everything that was a false erection, a false scaffolding. This happened by itself. This happened unbidden because my commitment was to the surrender above and beyond all else. And then it took care of itself. Yes. I I know this, (laughs) this is, these are, these are truthful words, not just about your life, but actually about it, about the fire. You know, this yes. fire, you'd, 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 you know, some fire had touched you on the inside, had, had, had was, was were like, it was a light. And your devotion, because there was a, at least a moment or an experience of, of the freedom or the joy or the surrender or the whatever it is of that. And then by and by, because your ongoing devotion, it doesn't happen just by itself. It, it seems to happen by itself, but it also happens because on the human level, you've give it your devotion. You wake up, you get entangled and you see that there's something fundamentally much more than that, the devotion, 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 devotion to it. And then by and by, it, it, it takes care of itself on a certain level. I know yes. this to be true in my life as well. The, yes. That's right. So surrender sounds very soft and very flowing, (laughs) Uh, but it has tremendous uh, ferocity. Yeah, the ferocity of truth, the ferocity of clearing the way. And so it's uh, it's almost like a symbiotic relationship between a kind of softness, a kind of receptivity, uh, a kind of bowing down to what is, and the ferocity of being devoted to that and only that, not ideologically or conceptually, yeah, but in yeah. the very cells, in the very heart of your being, mm. where, yeah, and then it does take care of itself, <laughs> you have no choice, and then you have no choice because you, you, you're in surrender, and surrender is choiceless. Yeah, you don't make a choice to surrender. <laughs> it sort of so, so, takes so, you. So we talked about, uh, we actually talked about what the, the discontent, yeah, the suffering, the itch, the scratch, the, yeah, because, and then you, 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 you described a, a, the process for you, some of the process or a little glimpse of it. What had actually, was, the, was there a discontent in you that drove you to go to India in the first place? Because what I'm wondering is you, you, you had an experience, not to do with India necessarily, but, you know, it's grace or something drove you. Was it discontent that drove you there in the first place? Because <laughs> then everything happened subsequently and everything has been subsequent to it. Well, again, a uh, 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 deep question because... I could say on one level, there was a very uh, definite discontent that drove me to India. Yeah, um, I didn't go to, let's say, enjoy myself or you know, <laughs> for any recreational purposes. I had no idea, really. But Not something vacation, drove then. me. <laughs> It wasn't. There was a discontent. The discontent was essentially uh, within myself, but manifesting or expressing itself through my very uh, dramatic and turbulent relationship that I was in, um, which uh, left me, because of my own internal landscape, uh, left me uh, always 
very often, I should say, um, bereft, abandoned, alone, misunderstood, mm. misjudged, uh, outcast. Of course, these are things in me. The, they were qualities in me, qualities mm. of my own beliefs, but they were expressed through my relationship. And I just, I knew that I had to find myself. I didn't know what that meant. Mm. I wasn't actually looking for enlightenment. Um, I, 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 but I, But I knew that there was something about finding myself that could only come by being with myself and something about being in India um, mm. called me because I, I was really on my own, even though I ended up in the ashram, I had essentially gone on my own into an unknown country, into the wilderness of India, um, the land of the kingdom of surrender, I should say. Mm. Um, and uh, it was completely unknown. I had no idea other than going to Pune, which I didn't even know what that was. I didn't know what I would find there. I hadn't been there before, um, but something called me and I didn't know if I would stay there, move on. And and, and I did, I, I moved away and I came back. Um, but it was really about finding myself, whatever that meant. And it sort of kickstarted. Yeah. But to take that question just a little bit further, the yes. discontent was probably there since the day I was born. Yes. 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 <laughs> yeah. If we look at the thread of discontent, there yes, was always yes, discontent. Yes. There was always a discomfort with, um, with the limitation of uh, sort of human experience that seemed to be imposed by others' beliefs. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so you so you were kind of you you saw the inherent overlay of conditioning right from 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 an early age you think instinctively or or or, or well i think way? as children we do i mean most children i, I think <laughs> are born open and innocent mm. and free of conditioning i i know some children seem to come in with a heavier burden than others but um essentially we come in naked i mean literally and metaphysically metaphorically naked and i i think i have a very strong and had a very strong sense of that nakedness as a child and so life around me people around me the world around me the circumstances the conditions um the the rules the yeah and all of that the interactions seemed to impinge upon that naturalness seemed to impinge upon that openness and I think I felt that very, very strongly, uh, not consciously as, as I would as a grown-up, as an adult, but it was definitely a feeling. So there was always a sense of discontent, a sense of being trapped, a sense of being outside of things. And somehow that, that kind of built a sort of existential discomfort, <laughs> which drew me to study psychology, which drew me to be interested in the transpersonal, which drew me then into being interested in, in meditation and more spiritual, um, transcendental uh, methods and psychedelic, of course. Yes. Um, so it's, it's all part of the same thread. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I remember once in, in the summer vacation from university, um, where you 
normally go and find a summer job, yeah, to be able to survive. I I had a summer job that lasted two weeks in the whole three months or whatever it was that we had summer uh, holidays. I lasted two weeks because in those two weeks working in, in, in an office where I was just Xeroxing paper after paper after paper of I don't know what, I felt like a machine, totally trapped, robotic, automated, and I didn't see the point of living. And I only lasted two weeks and I wanted to literally kill myself. I got so depressed. That's how unable to fit into the matrix <laughs> I always was. And I, I didn't know why. I, 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 you know, I couldn't work it out. I thought there must be something wrong with me. I must be just a very boring, depressing person or depressed person that can't handle doing anything. But I just, I just couldn't. I had to amazing. find myself in a whole other way. <laughs> well, it's amazing that this, these, this, because, because that was the same for me. When I started work, I was 17 years old. I lasted about a week and a half. I said, I'm never going to work again. <laughs> so I understand this. I think you and I are so such kindred spirits in this way. But uh, <laughs> but it's amazing how this misfit dysfunctionality, you know, can actually become a gift eventually. Yeah, because there's there's no brighter star that I know than you and nobody more dedicated to the to the I've never met anybody more dedicated to the to the walking the talk of openness, of walking the talk of uh, transformation, of walking the talk of this 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 kind of, you know, I, surrender. But it, this is a strong surrender. This is not a weak surrender. Yeah, we have to throw that idea of weakness out of the door. This surrender is is extraordinarily powerful. Mm. So, and I have to say that I do work all the time. <laughs> Work is not something to be limited by. It's uh, so. It's, so uh, yeah, let's, anyway, let, let's just let's kind of we, we we sort of we we the river took us into your into your life, and I have to say I I, I do rather like exploring uh, some parts of your life, and I think it's quite useful given that you're a you know a spiritual teacher who has a message, but also you have a life, and the life is reflected in the message, and the message is reflected in the life, and it does support people and help people to see you know the person behind the message the human being behind the message and we're not living in the old days where the teacher was some anonymous kind of being in a way it's good to see the humanity you know the, the how it worked how what the movement was how's the river been for you because i know you and i know how the river has been for you and it's like wow that's that's an incredible journey and incredible transformation so you know uh, uh, wrapping it up this is this is the truth yeah that, that if if you are able in your satsang way in the meetings that we do to light the fire to hold the fire of truth you know, this kind of truth this deepest most honest most open most tender true you know most most powerful if you like truth and it sets fire to somebody so and then they take that fire and it starts burning into their life in a good way in a good way then then the job is the work is is good yeah the job is i think that what's what's perhaps i don't know if it's unique i'm, I'm sure it's not unique but it, it in some ways it's a it's a break away from the traditional you know spiritual teacher vibe <laughs> in that in that you know 
what happens in in our meetings and gatherings is that everything is included. Mm-hmm. The the ordinary life is included. People do come with their ordinary life, let's call it everyday life, yeah. seeming problems, struggles, relationships, work, uh, loss, heartbreak, um, stress, uh, and so on. So people do come with that, and we don't just uh, turn away from that and point only to the to the absolute or the transcendent or to, you know, to the absolute truth as if that would solve all problems. It does solve all problems, but only when we include the problems. So <laughs> we bring, <laughs> we bring ways of shifting the perspective within the problems, not just shifting the perspective on the, on the level of the sort of personhood, although the personhood is included, but shifting the perspective enough so that we go beyond the personhood. Mm. And that's a great challenge in some ways because it is, we're, yeah. it's, the, it, it's, it's the dance, the relationship, the paradox of the relative and the absolute, the in the world but not of the yes, world. Yes, that's right. And it's totally relevant to our times. This is, this is spirituality uh, for the contemporary seeker. Uh, and, and as both you and I say, Kavi, so often it's not really spirituality anymore. Mm. Spirituality implies something other. It is and it isn't. Yes, mm. it is spirituality because we're talking about that, which is not just on the surface, but it's not spirituality in the sense of it being something uh, separate from our everyday lives. This is yeah. absolutely relevant, practical, necessary for the evolution of the individual and the evolution of humanity at this stage in our history and hopefully our next podcast might be on exactly that point talking uh, about the bifurcation point in consciousness at this point in history that's a good one isn't it you're on (laughs) it's a date it's a date lovely okay so let's do that if we can try and do that before christmas so yes. that it's a christmas you know, it's, offering it's got a christmas special <laughs> yeah <A> bifurcation <laughs> point especially for christmas excellent uh, okay amoda thank you so much for sharing uh, your your personal story and um and uh, learning there thereupon and uh for opening this juicy subject up um are you are you complete? Is that good? I am complete and incomplete at the same time. <laughs> okay. Thank, Thank you, Kavi, so- for the bowl of this conversation. My pleasure, as always. I I enjoy it. Um, I'll see you downstairs for a cup of tea. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Uh, and putting up with our meandering shenanderings. And uh, we hope there's something you know, that speaks to you, that speaks to your heart, that speaks to your fire within. Uh, We're all passengers and custodians of the change that is going on and taking place, whether we like it or whether we don't like it, or maybe. Um, Be well, be blessed. And uh, we're going to see you again soon for another podcast. Uh, Meanwhile, take care. Bye-bye.